from Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, the U.S. government murders a bunch of civilians, including women and children, as it hightails it out of Afghanistan. Also, international law expert Francis Boyle says retaliation is not self-defense under international law, but only more aggression. And remembering the Chicano moratorium 50 years after. All this coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. And uh, we are going to start off the program remembering the, it's the 50th anniversary of the Chicano Moratorium. It is amazing that it falls on the day that the United States has to leave another occupied country after creating incredible suffering. And the suffering continues. We're going to talk about that later with international law expert Francis Boyle. But first, we do turn our attention to the Chicano Moratorium. On August 29th, 1970, more than, much more than 20,000 demonstrators marched through East Los Angeles for the National Chicano Moratorium against the Vietnam War. But the protest for peace devolved into an up-close murder scene. By the day's end, hundreds were arrested, and the trailblazing Latino journalist Ruben Salazar was dead. We're going to talk about the Chicano Moratorium, and boy, is it relevant. Joining us first uh, to do that is our own Miguel Gavilan Molina and our good friend Gabriel Hernandez. Uh, both are deeply engaged with this story and have been fighting this good fight for many years. I want to welcome you back, Gabriel Hernandez. It is good to have you back on the show again. Gabriel, are you there? Yes, yes. How are you doing, uh, Dennis? This is Gabriel. Oh, terrific. I'm doing great, and we're glad to have you aboard to deal with uh, and remember the Chicano Moratorium. Also joining us is our own Miguel Gavilan Molina. We're going to talk a little bit. We're going to play a commentary by Miguel. We're going to keep talking later on. We're going to be joined by Dr. Ron Lopez. I'm going to talk more about the uh, Chicano Moratorium and Ruben Salazar. But, Gabriel, let me, let me start with you. When you think of the Chicano Moratorium, what does it mean to you? Why was it important, this event that took place some 50 years ago in 1970? Well, I think um, one of the important historical aspects of it, it's one of the largest um, gatherings of Raza in the United States, actually, to protest this government. And I think that, um, again, it was a culmination of a a lot of different moratoriums that were building up over uh, several years. Um, Again, during that time, you have to put it in the context of the Vietnam War. And at that time more than 20% of us were being killed in the Vietnam War. But um, here in the United States, um, you know, we we had little access to education. We had little access to jobs. We had little access to a bunch of different things. And yet 
we were uh, dying at, at such a high rate um, over in, in the, the Vietnam War. And so you, you had a lot of access. You know, sorry, you had a lot of access to war and the war zone and to ducking bullets and to military equipment and to be out there stealing another people's land when you didn't have access at home. I'm sorry, but it and again, if you look at the names of the people who died recently in Afghanistan, you're going to see a disproportionate n- n- number of Latino names. I mean, it continues. Sorry to interrupt, Gabriel. Yeah, no, no. I, I think, you know, again, the, the important thing was that the idea of, of you know, again, people coming together and, and uh, demanding peace. And like I said, it, it wasn't something that, that Rasa did at that time. You know, it, there was different movements. You know, there was land movements during the time. Um, but again, this was one of the largest manifestations of, of brown people coming together. Um, to to protest what was happening in, in, during the war at that time. The other and, and, just to uh, to, go on. Yeah, the other no, thing I was is, just going to say, Gabriel. Yeah, the other Gabriel, thing you finish. Was yeah, was that um, you know again uh, during that time uh, the, the sheriffs uh, attacked the the and we call it what they call a police riot. So they attacked the families. They attacked the the people gathering and, you know, again, during that time, uh, there were uh, three uh, people who were killed. Uh, one of them, notably, it was um, Ruben Salazar, who actually wasn't even at the, the march, but he had been threatened. He was a, a Los Angeles uh, Times reporter writing again about the inequities of what was going on in this country and, and talking about police violence and things of that sort. And the police actually threatened him to, to shut him up. And, uh, uh, and eventually uh, they ended up killing him that day. Miguel. I, I just wanted to add that uh, the casualties in Vietnam, I believe, were 23,000 Chicanos out of 57,000 American soldiers that gave their their lives in that effort. Um, and, and here, I, I think with the Chicano Moratorium, it, it was a, a day of coming together and protesting uh, the Vietnam War. Uh, Ruben uh, Salazar, the noted journalist, uh, you know, just acclaimed writer in the L.A. area and throughout the Southwest, was also um, across the street uh, uh, of the uh, of the rally that happened after the march, and uh, you know, as Gabriel put it, this was a police riot. The LAPD, you know, one of the biggest riots it had, and three casualties at the end. I just wanted to clarify that. And it's interesting, you know, the 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 cops don't uh, spend that much time reading the L.A. Times, but they certainly saw him on television because he was a television correspondent as well. Yes. And so Ruben Salazar was very high profile and eloquent in his analysis uh, in terms of class and death and really what was going on on the ground in Los Angeles. Uh, Gabrielle, you can jump in. Yeah, no, I, I think um, the other thing for us um, in 1980, um, it was the 10th anniversary. And so in the Bay Area, we began to uh, commemorate the day uh, similar to a Memorial Day, but also as, a, as again, an ongoing type of rally where we could um, raise issues that were happening during that time. So each year, 
as we commemorated the moratorium, we would raise issues that were prevalent during the time, you know, 1980, 81, 82, and so on. And even today, um, you know, talking about, you know, the inequities that are, that are playing out, you know, against people, uh, brown people in the United States. And so I think, um, again, for us, it's a very important day, not only to remember those families and those people who've died for the movement, you know, the Rasa uh, that have died for the movement, but also, you know, again, uh, raising the issues that are prevalent. So, for example, um, you know, we've talked about that, right? You know, you have all of these um, immigrants being brought in uh, from uh, other countries, and they're going to be given support, homes, education, health care. And yet they still have thousands of our children incarcerated in um, immigration camps, um, separated from their families and with no access and no um, real resources to, to support these kids that are um, incarcerated in the um, immigration camps. Yeah, and where are they going to hide the kids again when the next uh, group of uh, refugees come from a war zone that the United States created and uh, uh, inflamed? Uh, we're going to take a break here. We want to listen to Miguel's commentary uh, on the Chicano Moratorium and 50 years after. So let's listen to Miguel and then we'll be back. This is Miguel Gavila Molina for Flashpoints. Today, we're acknowledging this past weekend's commemoration of the 1969 Chicano Moratorium 52nd Annual Gathering. In reflecting on that event, that day that took the lives of Ruben Salazar, famous Chicano journalist for the LA Times, we also acknowledge the two others that gave their lives that day from a Los Angeles police riot that attacked a peaceful gathering of Chicano families, students, and people in asking the U.S. government to stop the war in Vietnam. That war took the lives of over 23,000 Chicano soldiers out of 57,000 American soldiers lost in that campaign. In reflecting, I put together this commentary about the current situation we face today, 52 years after that infamous day on August 29th, 1969. I've titled this piece, Coming of the End of White Male Dominance. The mindset of the United States was founded upon white supremacy, male dominance, class bias, and religious prejudice. The blinders view of intolerance and discriminatory behavior currently rising up in this country is still influenced by these limited beliefs. These ideas have been part of a colonial legacy since its inception and were brought here from a medieval Europe by white male settlers. These ideologies were cemented within the U.S. Constitution, which limited voting rights to rich white men and stated that blacks were only three-fifths human. From a white man's perspective at that time, women and Native Americans were not considered as full human beings. That also included white workers who did not own property, along with indentured servants who were also classified as socially inferior. Violence against females by fathers, husbands, and authorities was socially and legally acceptable, and these attitude and practices still prevail today. The lack of universal education and a reliance upon religious beliefs perpetuated this society's growth of intolerance, discrimination, and outright racism. 
These aggressive actions and annexations, motivated by manifest destiny, brought additional captive peoples into the expanding U.S. territories. More Native Americans, Chicanos, Puerto Ricans, Asian Americans, European immigrants, and a constant flow of African slaves up until the Civil War were added to the discriminated list of untouchables. A majority of the United States of America was and continues to be economically controlled by wealthy white men who justified their system of domination through the use of white supremacy, which also was supported with a legalized system of segregation and institutionalized intolerance. This growing trend of racial bigotry and prejudice needs to be countered. The worst aspects of these harmful practices have been overcome over time due to the struggles of mass social and political movements which have fought for justice and social equality. Yet racial bigotry still persists and is now being embraced and perpetuated on a weekly basis by politicians who openly spit venomous racial and gender policies and advocate for their enactment into law. Many people are shocked and disgust at the reemergence of intolerant statements, actions, and hate-filled scapegoating by politicos and extreme right-wing groups. Being upset and doing nothing but ignoring these individuals and the toxic social environment that they create will not resolve these problems and make these bigots disappear into the gutters and sewage of history. Hateful ideas and statements by people and groups such as these ultimately cross the lines to commit actions which physically harm those that are weaker. This rise in ethnic hatred needs to be actively confronted and not avoided nor dismissed. Being in denial instead of standing up and speaking out for social justice and norms of decency and mutual respect and behavior only encourages these hate-filled bullies to counter this growing hatred and ignorance and right-wing terror will require strong support for an educational public system. This includes the strengthening and expansion of ethnic studies programs, which are presently under siege, as these courses will assist in expanding the public's level of education and transform more persons into socially conscious members of this society. There is also the urgent need to strengthen laws that prohibit discrimination and which defend equality of opportunity for all people within the economic, political, and educational institutions of this country. An attack by these well-funded terrorist bullies on anyone is an attack on all of us, as their targets for discrimination range from minorities and the poor to women and to labor. It is time to rise and resist harmful statements and ignorant actions that impact our communities and society. These ignorant backward elements will eventually hurt our families with their uncivil behavior. It is time now to rise, resist, and persist, and stand up, speak out, and take action to repeal this vile trend of intolerance, inhumanity, 
and discrimination. The ultimate goal is to create a world where the majority of people respect the truth in history, experience, and struggles of all ethnic groups who have contributed to the building of this country. Everyone needs to accept the social and new world realities that we are now a diverse society and we will no longer accept the existence of a backward world of white male domination. No mas. Ya basta. Aho. Miguel Gavila Molina, Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Jenna Spernstein. We're also joined by Gabriel Hernandez. And now we are also delighted to be joined by Dr. Ron Lopez. He's the professor, associate professor, chair, Chicano and Latino studies at the Sonoma State University. And Dr. Ron Lopez, welcome back to Flashpoints. Thank you very much, Dennis. I'm glad to be here. It's good to have you with us. Well, we're talking about uh, the Chicano Moratorium some 52 years later, began in 1969, spilled over into 1970, into the streets. I want to circle back a little bit and get a little bit more information. I want people to understand more about the day and how it was that Ruben Salazar uh, was murdered by a sheriff's deputy at close range with a tear gas canister, I believe, inside a bar. Well, yes. Um, the story, as it's commonly told, I actually uh, have an alternate theory for which I have no evidence. But um, uh, Ruben Salazar had been a, a reporter for the Los Angeles Times. He had actually started off in El Paso, and then one of his uh, other first jobs uh, was at the Press Democrat in Santa Rosa, where he was a cub reporter, so he was, his, his uh, reports wouldn't have a byline, his name wouldn't be on them, but he was a writer. Um, and we do have an archive of his writings at Sonoma State University. Uh, he then went on to the Los Angeles Times, where he became a reporter and a commentator. And among other things, uh, he wrote articles about the, the growing Chicano movement, and he's somebody who we would see as a very, today, we would see him as a very mainstream, sort of Hispanic, uh, uh, assimilationist-oriented person. But he was also somebody who understood truth and appreciated truth. And, you know, he listened to what was going on in the community. He uh, wrote about police brutality. He wrote about what were the motives behind the Chicano movement. In fact, one of his uh, a well-known articles was, uh, what, what is the Chicano and what does the Chicano want? And he said that a Chicano is a, is a Mexican-American with a non-Anglo definition of himself. Uh, you know, today that language sounds sexist, but at the time it was just, you know, it was very conventional. Um, and, and Ruben Salazar also was reporting on police brutality and the disproportionate use of force and over-policing, and in, in especially in the Latino community, which was vastly underreported. Uh, and, and in fact, it, this came to be seen as a threat uh, alongside the growing Chicano movement, uh, other reporting and, and uh, uh, complaints that were going on. And Ruben Salazar, as a reporter, a respected reporter for Los Angeles Times, was a voice that could not be ignored. He wasn't some radical. Uh, he wasn't somebody who was uh, seen as, you know, outside the mainstream. But he was saying, look, what these uh, young people and some of the older activists have been saying all along, that they're right. And this has to stop. And he was reporting honestly, as a good reporter should, um, on the, the injustices that were taking place in the community. Uh, the sheriff at the time actually warned him 
And during the, the Chicano moratorium march against the war in Vietnam, and, and it has to be said, if I can I go on a slight tangent, this was not the first Chicano moratorium march. There have been a number of smaller ones in other states and other towns, and this was like the final one. So this was the one that was going to be the big one that was, you know, a mass statement where people had come from out of town as well as locals. And, um, you know, Salazar felt that he was being followed. He was with uh, a fellow uh, Los Angeles Times um, uh, reporter and photographer. And so they went into this small bar, the Silver Dollar Bar. And uh, the police say that, you know, they told people to come out. And then, you know, um, some people left. And then they fired into the bar. But Professor Raul Ruiz, who has also passed away, um, along with many other of that generation. Uh, Professor Raul Ruiz was at that time a photographer and writer for La Raza newspaper. And he was outside the bar taking pictures. And so he saw the police putting, you know, forcing people to go back into the bar, and then they fired a tear gas projectile into the bar. Now, it was supposed to have been, or it should have been, uh, if they were going to fire a tear gas projectile into a crowded space, which it is not. It, it was not recommended. Um, it was like an outside crowd control um, type of, uh, you know, that was the use that was intended. But for going into a space where there were people, they had one with a cardboard cylinder. So uh, it, it wouldn't cause any severe injury uh, at, at a reasonable distance. But the, the tear gas projectile that they fired was actually a wall penetrating. It was a, like an armor piercing um, tear gas projectile with, with, a, with a metal uh, front like a bullet, and according to the report, this actually struck Ruben Salazar in the back of the head. Now, my theory, which is not has I have no basis for this, but my theory is that in fact Ruben Salazar may well not have been hit by this tear gas projectile, but there may have been someone else who followed him into that bar and dispatched him. As gas filled the bar, everyone, including the other reporter for the Times, ran outside. And he was left inside for several hours where he expired. He would have died anyway because it hit him in the back of the head. But I personally uh, uh, believe that even if the tear gas projectile did hit him, it, um, you know, that would have meant that the, the, the deputy uh, sheriff firing it was a real sharpshooter. Um, and I imagine that, you know, he may, it may well have been the case that um, another person was there and made sure to finish the job. That's just me, because it just seems so unlikely. But we still don't know. We, we don't know who the murderer is, right? The murderer went free to shoot somebody else. Well, we do. I don't have his name. I think his name was uh, 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 Deputy Sheriff, I think it was Wilson. But we, we know that he's the one that fired the tear gas projectile. If somebody else was involved, and, and I, just, I just, you know, think it's, highly unlikely that the police and sheriff were following Ruben Salazar and then they fired through a curtain uh, towards the ceiling and it just happened to hit him square in the back of the head. I just, I right. find that, I find that a stretch of the imagination. Nonetheless, right. what is important about this is that Ruben Salazar was targeted and assassinated, murdered by the state because he was speaking the truth. And the truth is the same truth that applies to all the young uh, black and brown men and native men uh, today who are routinely singled out uh, over police 
brutalized, have their necks leaned on, are shot at. Andy Lopez here in Santa Rosa in 2013, um, October of 2013. Um, and and this is like, this is an ongoing phenomenon. So what Ruben Salazar was saying was this is really happening. These young radicals are radicalized not because they're, they're crazy. They've been radicalized by this in, injustice. And he was a voice of reason that people were listening to. And this is why he was a threat. And this is why he was eliminated. And this is also why we, uh, as the public, um, need to uh, acknowledge and listen to these voices and give them the credence that they so richly deserve and, and work towards policies that change things. The, the lesson of the Chicano moratorium is not to look back into the past, but to continue those struggles so that we can emerge into a brighter, better future where we have equality for all people. Well, I'm, I'm trying to be positive, Ron, but this is the day United States is leaving another occupation war. They killed a bunch of civilians on the way out. If you look at the death list in terms of Afghanistan, again, it's disproportionately people of color, Latino. Look at the names. It's amazing. So uh, not much has changed there. Right, because part of the part of the, the, the politics of the Chicano moratorium against the war was that the people that were being drafted uh, were disproportionately young men of color, African-American and Latino men. Uh, in the Southwest, that was uh, Mexican-American or Chicano young men. And in places like, you know, back east, you're talking about Puerto Ricans. And they were being uh, disproportionately, along with African-Americans, uh, sent to war. People like Charlie Trujillo have written about this in a number of books and also a documentary film called Soldados about soldiers in the war, where Mexican-Americans are described and, and African-Americans are described as always being sent out and into the front, always riding point always, you know, uh, walking in front of the other soldiers uh, and drawing fire or being sent into the most dangerous situation. And this has happened time and time again. It goes back to earlier wars. Um, and and it's, it's a policy where, where on the, in the battlefront, in the battlefield, we are the cannon fodder. You know, we're the, we're the peasants. You know, that get the, the human shields, too. Uh, the, human the human shields. shields. Yeah, right. we're the ones who get the first hail of arrows and go down so that then, you know, the knights ride through. And um, at the same time, here at home, we're not afforded the opportunities. After the Second World War, people came back from the war having fought. African-Americans, Mexican-Americans, Puerto Ricans, they had fought in the Second World War, and they came home to find that the uh, GI Bill loans were, were not available for them. They could not get the training. They could not get the home loans. They could not get uh, buy a car. Uh, in anywhere near the same proportion um, uh, as, as whites. And the new housing that was being built in the post-war era was universally redlined. So that, that, this goes way, way back. And so when we wonder about, like, you know, housing inequality today, this housing inequality is over half a century old. Uh, and, and it's continuing, and we're not moving towards uh, better solutions. And that's why we have to know our history and continue fighting for something better. Well, that's exactly what you do, Dr. Ron Lopez, as the chairman of the Chicano and Latino Studies Department at Sonoma State University. Very incredible work that you do. Uh, also on the line with us still is Gavilan Molina and also Gabriel Hernandez. You've been uh, waiting patiently. You want to jump in here, Gabriel? 
Yeah, no, I just also want to recognize the others that died that day. Um, Gustav Montag, who was a, a young uh, Jewish guy supporting the and participating. And then Lynn Ward, who was a 15-year-old Brown Beret, and also Angel uh, Gilbert Diaz. So they, those three also were right. killed um, that day. Yes, and that's, you want to say... Go and you do you want to, Miguel? Do you want to say something about how the brown berets emerged? Uh, this you know many things happened. I mean, uh, the culture hasn't changed, hasn't been transformed. Racism is still a pandemic in this country, but some amazing things came out of uh, the Chicano moratorium in that movement, like the brown berets, right, Miguel? Well, absolutely. Uh, Carlos Montes was one of the founding members of the Brown Berets, and, and the Brown Berets came out of uh, being inspired by what was happening in the uh, African-American community with the Black Panthers. And uh, they started organizing to provide uh, uh, security, to provide safety. Uh, the barrio was under, has always been under uh, attack by police forces and the police state. It, you know, it goes on beyond 60 years. This goes you know, back to about 150 years. It's never stopped. But the Brown Berets emerged as a as a defensive uh, security-minded uh, group of young men and women uh, who trained uh, to provide security. That day, they held a line. They were the the, the line of defense against the uh, police, uh, Sheriff's Department, L.A. Police uh, uh, Department's uh, onslaught on the crowd. Uh, a lot of them went down that day injured, gassed, beaten, and arrested. But uh, that spirit still uh, survives in some pockets across this country. Uh, I know in Arizona they've regrouped uh, to fight uh, in the last uh, uh, five, ten years uh, what we call the Joe Arpaio reign of terror uh, in Arizona. And they rose up to, again, the defend the community. And I think here in California, uh, I know the Brown Berets uh, uh, are still, uh, you know, there's some youth groups that have come together. Uh, I know Carlos Montes is still active in those areas. And uh, up here, uh, the Brown Berets uh, from uh, Sacramento, uh, San Jose, East Oakland, San Francisco, uh, all the way down to Fresno, there was chapters up in the area. I know that uh, uh, Ventura, Mr. Chuch, Longoria uh, was active along with his brothers, uh, you know, and others to form a group uh, of Brown Berets uh, with some of the leadership coming out of Hayward, uh, the Hayward community, which had a real strong chapter uh, in the area. But those groups uh, sort of faded. Uh, people, you know, uh, outgrew the times. Uh, people moved on, had families, had kids. Uh, but the spirit still lives on today. I know up in the North Bay in uh, Los Brown Angels uh, that still come together uh to help sometimes on low rider car shows, events, and so forth. So that spirit is still there. Yep. Um, but I think overall today, here we are, you know, 2021, August, uh, commemorating the Chicano Moratorium, and we still have children in cages. You know, Dennis, in the last week, I, I keep seeing faces of children from Afghanistan. You know, they keep showing these, you know, little portraits while they're giving the news reports. And, and those faces, if you didn't know, you know, these, these children weren't from Afghanistan, 
you would think they were the children in cages at the border. So I, I'm saying to myself, Dennis and, 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 and Gabriel and Ron, uh, Dr. Ron Lopez, uh, that, uh, you know, uh, these are refugees, the kids in cages. I believe there's 130,000 women uh, on the U.S. border in concentration camps. Uh, you know, these are refugees. Uh, they're fleeing violence and death and destruction. Uh, they're fleeing uh, uh, the aftermath of U.S. foreign policy in those countries in Central America, you know, 30 years ago. And, and here we are. Well, we still have these children. I wonder if they're going to be released. I wonder if, if this country can once again look at itself and say, listen, we're accepting, you know, refugees from this war-torn, you know, country in Afghanistan where U.S. forces were there under, you know, with, uh, under occupation for 20 years. And now we have to rescue those refugees. What about the refugees we have here, you know, in children? From all the other wars, from all the other U.S. Exactly. wars that grew out of the Monroe Doctrine. Let me jump in here because we're, we're running out of time. Uh, Dr. Lopez, you, you are uh, the chair, as we said, of the Chicano and Latino Studies Department. There is a, we, Miguel and I and others, we were in Tucson when they we watched them uh take apart the ethnic studies program there that was successful and working and inspirational. Right. Now we're in a battle in California here. Where are we? It seems that the gov was uh, seemed to be a big supporter of ethnic studies. Then he got a few letters from folks who were a little bit disturbed, and now we're, we're sort of on a uh, holding pattern. When you say it's important to have curriculums that start in kindergarten that deal with these issues so that we can really see change well i think um uh it it's it, that that's i think it's a, a whole program that we could do if, if if you guys are interested in doing that we will do it uh, you're we're going to invite yeah. you back right now to do that okay. but go on i say think, something about I think this that we do need we do what we need to have is to tell children the truth about things allow them to become critical thinkers allow them i mean this country has to come to terms with the fact the land was stolen from indigenous people, that um, uh, African people who uh, were not slaves but were enslaved by enslavers, uh, and the people that we call, you know, the, the, the planters, the planter class, let's call them the enslaver class. Let's, let's look at things from the perspective uh, that isn't celebratory of the abuses, um, and there's actually a very good um, documentary that I've seen on uh, one of the cable shows called Exterminate All the Brutes um, that is a very, uh, it, it's difficult to watch, but it really does look at settler colonialism and white supremacy in a critical way. And I think it's important, and, it, and it, it, it's okay to be honest with children about things that have happened that are difficult. Uh, what is problematic is when everything becomes uh, a mythology that celebrates um, those abuses while burying the ugly parts of our collective past. Amazing. Well, that's the voice of Dr. Ron Lopez. He, again, is the chair of the Chicano and Latino Studies Department at Sonoma State University. How many departments like that are there in this country? What, what percentage do you think of the colleges have... Uh, a department like you are the chairman for? Um, I don't know. I don't actually know the number, but I know that um, in California now there is a mandate for every CSU to have an ethnic studies program. And now the community colleges will all have at least 
some ethnic studies classes, the real question becomes, how is this implemented? And I know that the, um, the, the proposals, uh, which have been you know, somewhat successful so far at implementing some ethnic studies in local districts, um, while we've, because I'm, I'm worked with the people here in Santa Rosa and Sonoma County on um, the development of ethnic studies curriculum and, and what that means. And because of the nature of how it, the power of education is so decentralized, um, the people that are able and willing and have the knowledge to commit the time and energy to develop this and like push these policies through are the people that um, are going to succeed. And that's why, I mean, something like having an ethnic studies program at a CSU or a community college or a UC, that's very important. But then the people, uh, and not even necessarily people that are of, uh, you know, of, of people of color background, but any, all good people that want to teach the truth about history and society um, should band together to talk about these things in critical ways, get these policies passed, get these uh, programs implemented so that, like myself, growing up in the 70s and going to school in the 70s and 80s, and then figuring out over time um, that a lot of the things that were being told to me in history class in elementary and junior high and high school were outright lies and cover-ups. And this is part of the reason I, I went into the field I did, because uh, a part of me was so disappointed uh, that I had been taught uh, the, the old way of seeing manifest destiny as this natural uh, thing, or slavery as this natural thing. We'd all been taught these things, and you go home with these ideas in your head, and you watch John Wayne killing Indians, and you think, yeah, uh, you know, it, it, it's because it's all part of a, of a singular narrative. Um, when we Amazing. don't want to say, no, we'd like to tell the truth, they say that's historical revisionism. The South, the, the after the fall of Reconstruction, at the, at, well after the Civil War was over, uh, a lot of Southerners went into uh, studying history and writing histories that vindicated the South and made the South out to be the victim of the Civil War. And this is part of the history that you see in all your mainstream history books today. Right. So that, right. you know, and this is the battle of the monuments and all that. So we're out. <clears throat> we're out of yeah. time for now. But we're going to put this show together really soon because this is an incredibly important subject. There was a, a program. The governor was a little bit shaky and they, he heard from, got a letter yeah. from uh, 50 Zionist or 80 Zionist organizations who were nervous about uh, teaching about uh, Arab Americans and the Palestinians. You, you know, you know the story, Ron. We're going to leave it there for now. Yeah. I want to thank you, Dr. Ron Lopez, for thank all the great work me. you do. Uh, chair of the Chicano uh, and Latino Studies Department. We really appreciate uh, Gabriel Hernandez, the incredible work you've done at all levels uh, in terms of educating the people. Uh, more will talk to you soon, I hope, and Miguel Gabriela Molina will talk to you really soon. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to focus on that, uh, that war of occupation in which the United States government now has a, sort of like a trademark. Uh, they have to do a final slaughter. So they killed a bunch of children, apparently some women in a, in a bombing that's questionable, to say the least. Stay with us back in 90 seconds.
And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. Uh, According to the Washington Post, at least 10 civilians, including children, were reportedly killed in the U.S. drone strike. Rockets fired at the... uh, Kabul airport. Now, this this whole story, the way this unfolded was uh, just literally unbelievable. We're going to talk about uh, the occupation, the killing. Was it justified or was this a, another war crime on the way out of Afghanistan uh, committed by the United States government? Somebody who knows a great deal about this and who's a hero of mine uh, is Francis Boyle. Uh, he is uh, he is a scholar, professor of international law at the University of Illinois. Many books uh, has been on the front lines, knows a great deal again, as I say, about uh, international law. Uh, Francis Boyle, it's good to have you back with us. You want to sort of respond to these last couple of days and that bombing that the United States said uh, there was some uh, um, collateral damage. Well, thank you very much for having me on, uh, Dennis, my best to your listening audience. And the truth of the matter is I've been interviewing for with you for so many years. You're one of my media heroes. So why don't we go from there? Thank you. Well, we have to look at the uh, sequence of events. And I, I want to make it clear I fully support uh, President Biden's uh, decision to go out. Uh, to leave Afghanistan to leave. Now, mm-hmm. now, now after uh, 20 years, it, it's long past due. Uh, but <clears throat> there was the uh, suicide bombing at the gate that unfortunately killed those uh, 13 U.S. military personnel. And there was report then that they, the surviving personnel just fired wildly uh, into the uh, crowd and uh, killed a lot of the uh, surrounding civilians. In any event, as you know, then President Biden uh, got up and made this warmongering speech. There's no other word for it. Uh, He sounded almost exactly like uh, Bush Jr. did uh, after um, uh, 9-11-2001. Nothing's changed in 20 years. Uh, And he just said, well, we're going to track you down. We're going to get you. We're going to take care of you, et cetera. So then, you know, they launched uh, uh, an aerial attack on a car, allegedly taking out two ISIS people. We don't know if any of that's true or not. Uh, but clearly, uh, retaliation, which Biden made it clear he was doing, is not legitimate self-defense uh, under uh, international law. But it is uh, further aggression, which this war has been right from the very get-go, uh, Dennis. Uh, And then, as you know, uh, overnight, they launched a drone murder extermination campaign against these two cars and killed. They they were all civilians. Indeed, uh, uh, the Pentagon lied. Uh, I got up early this morning. The uh, BBC was on and the BBC had sent people out uh, to the uh, drone murder uh, site and they confirmed that they were all civilians. So the Pentagon tried to uh, spin it. Uh, As for these latest drone murders, look, we all know that uh, uh, droning is just indiscriminate mass killing. Uh, They just sort of shoot these things up there. Uh, They, they, you know, they have no idea about the intelligence. 
They've killed thousands of uh, innocent men, women, and children uh, over over the years. And, you know, it was really Obama who cranked this up with his, uh, you know, death warrants that he signed and his infamous statement, gee, I'm really good at killing people. Uh, and then Trump jacked it up. And now uh, it appears Biden's going to continue it. Indeed, in the uh, 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 presser today given by uh, Secretary of State uh, Blinken, uh, he made it clear that uh, we were going to continue uh, to use uh, drone strikes and uh, 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 aerial attacks uh, in in Afghanistan itself. But let me just say overall um, on the war, this is a catastrophic defeat for American uh, imperialism, rising, uh, rivaling the uh, the defeat in uh, uh, Vietnam. The whole objective of the uh, invasion, you know, is not uh, anything related to the terrorist attacks 9-11-2001. It was for the United States to grab a foothold in Central Asia, uh, pursuant to the uh, uh, Brzezinski uh, document, uh, doctrine in the uh, grand chessboard uh, following uh, Mackinder, uh, that whoever controls uh, Eurasia controls the world. So that was what the invasion of Afghanistan was all about, to be right in there with uh, China, uh, Russia, uh, India, Pakistan, and then have direct access to all that uh, oil and gas in Central Asia. As you know, there was the Unical uh, pipeline that... Uh, we were going to uh, uh, run through Afghanistan to get it all up, and the Taliban wouldn't wouldn't do what we told them to do. So that was it for them. Uh, so uh, after 20 years, we just failed. It, it, it's a defeat. It's a rout, and we picked up uh, and left. Um, and uh, that that is it. Uh, oh, and by the, uh, one other point on the uh, drone incineration. Uh, we were supposed to leave tomorrow, August 31, and yet all of a sudden we left today, August 30th. Uh, I'm in favor of leaving, but I think the reason they left was uh, uh, today, a year, a day early, was they, after the drone murder uh, incineration of the family of 10 uh, or two families, uh, uh, they feared retaliation. Uh, you know, the night before, there were uh, five rockets fired uh, into that airport, uh, and uh, they were able to shoot it down uh, with their uh, defense mechanisms, but there could have been an entire volley of uh, rockets going into that uh, base tonight. So they just decided to pull the plug immediately and get out of Dodge before there was uh, retaliation. So there we are, Dennis. I I'm afraid, you know, that uh, I had thought living through the Vietnam War and opposing it as, as a teenager, that after that uh, catastrophe, the United States uh, government would have learned learned something, learned some lessons. But we learned all the wrong lessons from the uh, Vietnam War. And I'm afraid it does not appear we're going to learn any lessons from uh, this catastrophic defeat in Afghanistan. Indeed, Biden has already said, well, one of the reasons we're pulling out of uh, uh, Afghanistan is so that we can reposition against Russia and China. We've discussed this uh, before. Uh, so a uh, uh, pivot against uh, Russia and China. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, Russia's extremely uh, dangerous situation there with what's going on 
uh, in Ukraine and the Nazis uh, in charge of uh, Ukraine, our Nazis that we put into power uh, by uh, an illegal uh, coup d'etat. And then uh, China, I mean, uh, you know, Sam Huntington's uh, crash, uh, uh, clash of civilizations ends with a nuclear war between uh, the United States and uh, China. So, you know, having these provocative military maneuvers there uh, all around China in the South China Sea and the uh, 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 Taiwan Strait. So it's amazing. They have that. Remember, just to add this, uh, Francis Boyle, they, remember this $10 billion in the military budget for what they call over-the-horizon strikes. And it sounds very pleasant. It's like you get to watch the sunrise. Um, but there's that's, that's exactly a lot of money. That's what they to, said they're going to do here. Both uh, yeah. uh, Blinken today said, yes, we, uh, we're, we're going to be uh, prepared to do more strikes into uh, Afghanistan by aircraft there in the Persian Gulf and also by uh, by drones. So uh, it doesn't seem to me they've they've learned anything here. And indeed, we've had a completely uh, bogus war against uh, terrorism for the last uh, 20 years. You and I have given many interviews on it. You know, this is all about uh, uh, control, domination of the world. And uh, stealing oil and gas and natural resources wherever we can. I mean, if you look at uh, uh, the U.S. wars that we're waging around the world, at the heart of them are control, domination, uh, and oil, gas, and natural resources, every one of them. Listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio, we're speaking with uh, Professor Francis Boyle, uh, a professor of international law at the University of Illinois, uh, brilliant uh, on foreign policy and international law. You know, um, <laughs> you mentioned uh, Brzezinski. It is so interesting the way the lie is perpetuated. You've got his daughter, <laughs> doesn't bring that, the fact that Brzezinski was proud and bragging about how they were uh, secretly arming the Mujahideen uh, during the Jimmy Carter um, uh, administration. Uh, and then you got the other one there, the former communications director for Bush 2, who's got two hours, uh, uh, Nicole Wallace, every afternoon, perpetuating, sustaining this lie. Well, Dennis, uh, I, we discussed this before. I deliberately went through the uh, exact same Ph.D. program at Harvard that produced uh, Kissinger and Brzezinski before me, the Harvard Graduate School of Arts and Sciences Department of Government, whose chair had been McGeorge Bundy. So these people learned nothing, right? These are U.S. imperial managers and operatics. Now, that's my political lifetime, going back to McGeorge Bundy, and the uh, uh, Kennedy war against Vietnam, the best and the brightest. So what we're seeing here with uh, Brzezinski, uh, he became Jimmy Carter's uh, uh, national security advisor and uh, uh, recruited, hired everyone in the Democratic Party establishment at that time uh, to do uh, defense and foreign affairs work, for example, Madeleine Albright, uh, uh, and, and many others. And so the whole democratic establishment that we see today on defense, foreign affairs, foreign policy, counterterrorism, 
are Brzezinski proteges. And it's even worse than that. When Obama was a student at Columbia, uh, Brzezinski was his teacher and his mentor. So when Obama ran for president, he appointed Brzezinski to run his campaign for him when it came to foreign affairs and defense. So uh, Brzezinski recruited all his uh, 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 protégés and made new protégés for eight years of Obama. Well, that's the Bidenites. They're, they're the Brzezinski uh, uh, protégés, uh, including Joe, Joe Biden, too. Uh, it, it's the same mentality. Uh, we are dealing now in this Democratic establishment, uh, the Democratic Party, uh, the, son, the sons and the daughters of the best and the brightest who gave us the Vietnam War. That's who we are dealing with here, and that is their mentality. And that is why I'm afraid um, they, they've learned nothing from this catastrophic defeat uh, in Afghanistan. Would that bombing into the very populated city of Afghanistan, would that uh, be considered a war crime? I think so, sure, because, uh, you, you know, before you do anything in a populated city, uh, you you have to consider the uh, incidental civilian casualties. And here, you know, there were no military targets anyone know of. They just blew up an entire uh, uh, family in, in a car uh, uh, in, in downtown Kabul. So, yeah, war crime. And when you fit it within the general pattern of these drone murder extermination campaigns. It did start with Bush Jr., but it was really uh, 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 cranked up under Obama, who was behind me at Harvard Law School. Uh, even Chomsky uh, has condemned this as uh, uh, saying it's the most uh, murderous terrorist campaign uh, of the uh, 20th century, the drone murder campaign. Uh, and so if you look at the broader pattern of, of the drone murder extermination campaign, we're talking of crimes against humanity. That is when war crimes are widespread or systematic. And in this case, the drone murder extermination campaign is both widespread and systematic. It becomes a crime uh, against humanity, just short of genocide in terms of severity. And if you look at who are all the victims, of the uh, American drone murder campaign, starting with Bush Jr., escalated by uh, uh, Obama, further escalated by uh, Trump, and now uh, being resumed by uh, Biden. There was a, a pause for a period of time when they they were considering what their uh, policy were going to be, but now you know they started again in uh, Somalia. We have the drone strike here. Uh, all the victims are Muslims, Arabs, Asians of color, Dennis. I repeat that, Muslims, Arabs, Asians of color. This is verging on genocide uh, between you and me, this, this drone murder uh, extermination campaign. It's amazing. Uh, that, again, we're speaking with uh, Dr. Professor Francis Boyle. Uh, he is a professor of international law at the University of Illinois, and he's a good friend of this show. And we're talking about, well, 
the United States uh, leaving town, Afghanistan, uh, and creating, you know, sort of uh, a bit of a bloodletting uh, on the way out. A whole bunch of women and children murdered again. It, it is a it is a troubling moment uh, in the history, and it, it really does not bode well uh, for where we are going. I, I am very worried. I guess you are as well, Professor Boyle. Yes, that, that's my uh, assessment, especially in light of the statements made by President Biden that we're, we're going to reposition uh, against uh, Russia and China, which we are already doing. It's extremely dangerous in both cases. And then uh, 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 the Secretary of State uh, today, Blinken, uh, making it quite clear we're going to continue these over-horizon drone attacks, drone murder attacks, and uh, jet aircraft attacks in Afghanistan and elsewhere. Yeah. And, of course, we can't forget that Afghanistan, one border is Iran, the other border is China. You know, I mean, this is, and the United States thinks it has the right to be there. We're at a time, uh, Professor Francis Boyle, as always, we appreciate the really good information. We recommend your work, your books. Professor Francis Boyle, again, uh, is a professor of international law at the uh, University of Illinois. Thank you for being with us again on Flashpoints today, Professor. Well, thank you, uh, Dennis. And I do want to condemn, once again, the entire Berkeley Law School for giving their most prestigious chair to that war criminal, John Yu, who was in at the very beginning of the Bush Jr. Uh, war against terrorism that we've been dealing with now for 20 years. Wow. Yeah, we'll leave it there. More to say about that. And we're done, though. You've been listening to Flashpoints. Stay tuned.